Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater, your movie podcast for movies that just didn't quite make it, but maybe they're still worth your time. Uh, this week, we take a look at David Pryor's The Empty Man, um, a, another unfortunate casualty of the Disney-Fox merger, but a film that had some issues well before that time period. Um, any movie that gets filmed in 2016, it doesn't get released until 2020. It had some problems. And so we're going to talk about that one. Uh, joining me, as always, is... Catherine! My sister. And I am your amiable co-host, Tim. Um, so we haven't really had a catch-up here in a while, so I figured we'd kick off before our discussion of The Empty Man with just a, what you've been watching, what you enjoy in these days, um, what media is going in your eye holes and your ear holes and possibly rattling around in there? Um, for me, I have not been watching new movies, really. Um, the last thing I watch is I've actually watched The Devil Wears Prada for the first time. Mm. Would you believe that? <laughs> um, I can. I, uh, I watched something about Meryl Streep, and I got to thinking, like, there are other Meryl Streep movies that I haven't seen. Um, sure. And everybody always kind of goes to that one, and then I'm, like, a really big fan of Stanley Tucci. So uh, I thought I'd give it everybody a Everybody loves the Tooch. I, I'm a big fan. I just think he's great. I'll watch him do anything. Same with Meryl Streep. I'll watch her. I'll watch her yell at me. She can yell at me. That'd be great. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, Meryl Streep is is one of the most important actors of the latter 20th century and, and, and this century as well. She's and incredible. I guess the thing that's really interesting about movies like The Devil Wears Prada, the, and the reason like I, I enjoy watching movies like that occasionally, is it is remarkable to see great actors in bad movies in movies that are yep. just like generally not great because you can you can see how an actor can transform a script that is terrible yeah i mean the devil wears prada um i mean it was a, it was a very popular book but it was another you know kind of an airport read it's kind of yeah, the same like just like very, gone girl very you know, fluffy kind of and, and the script is mm -hmm. just over the top with the the cheese and and very very dated wow um, you know, and it falls back on all of yeah. those makeover tropes and, and it's, you know, it's a little, it's a little much. 2006 was, might as well have been a hundred years ago. Um, Everybody's just doing Pygmalion. It's all about breakfast, <laughs> baby. And, uh, you know, in, in that regard, it's, it's pretty hard to stomach, but I do just absolutely love watching Meryl Streep eat scenery and mm -hmm. spit it out. It's fantastic. It's fun when she lets loose. Like, I mean, I love her in her more serious and dramatic roles, but um, she's also an actress that is is really fun to watch when she's having fun. Yeah. And Devil Wears Prada is certainly you know, in that, that realm. Yeah, you know, exposing uh, some of my, my, my ignorance to to those types of, of more fluffy films. You know, I felt bad that I had never seen it, so... Yeah, I'm going to be, you know, there there are a bunch of those that are big blind spots for me. Like, I've never seen any of the Bridget Jones movies, which people speak highly of. I've never seen Legally Blonde movies. Yeah, um, I've never seen those either. You know, it's just, it's it's stuff that I look at and go like, I know that's good. Uh, I'm sure it's very funny. I'm sure it's very engaging. Um, but there I, are no I bombs or guns or explosions or 
That's just so yeah. hard for me. <laughs> I I have latter Hellraiser movies to watch. Thank you very much. Hellraiser Hell World isn't going to watch itself. Okay. Um, Are yeah, there no, any it's, carpets it's... made of human flesh in this movie? Because that's really what I came here to see. I need a human skin totem in my <laughs> film to be satisfied. Um, no, it's it's definitely that. I we uh, watched a couple of things this weekend. You know, more more traditional fare, I guess, um, as well, and 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 had a pretty good time. But we did watch uh, Finch on Apple Plus, uh, which is one of the uh, another sort of COVID mm-hmm. casualty that Apple Plus picked up because it's got you know the Thomas Hanks. And uh, and pretty much no one else. It's it's another like castaway style Tom Hanks in a in a bus kind of thing. Uh, there there is a, a robot character that it was mocapped by Caleb Landry Jones uh, and and voiced as well, which was very good. Uh, and we really enjoyed it. it it's very typical post apocalyptic sci fi. Uh, it was one of those scripts that was on the blacklist for a couple of years, um, that you know finally got developed and uh, very enjoyable. Like very straightforward, not breaking any new like sci-fi ground necessarily, but very well acted, extremely well structured and, and just a, an enjoyable one that we, we thought was pretty good. Uh, my big thing of late, uh, I finally got a 4k Blu-ray player, uh, kind of for my birthday, I had a little bit of birthday cash that uh, I was given. And I was like, eh, I'm going to go ahead and do this. Our Blu-ray player basically died. Um, it ate a disc and then, wouldn't do anything anymore so i was like well i had it i probably had that blu-ray player for probably 10 years so it 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 ran its course it did fine but uh so i upgraded to that and and so i have been on the hunt for you know 4k blu-rays of note and i've bought far too many of them in a short time span than is healthy but i bought lord of the rings because they're um, and it's glorious. Like it's, it's truly, truly glorious. Um, I, I spent most of the fellowship of the ring in tears. Just <laughs> it's so beautiful. Um, so that was really cool. Um, I got the thing, uh, which was a recent release and I, I, I realized that I only had the thing on DVD. I didn't even have a Blu-ray copy of it. And I've, I'd heard that some of the Blu-rays weren't that great. Um, just visually like the transfers were bad and didn't look that good, but my God, um, it's so goopy in 4k, just so much goop everywhere. It's covered in goop and, and the Wilford Brimley just looks incredible and, and Kurt Russell, of course, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it was really cool. It was, it was very, very awesome, uh, to see it. In, in that kind of clarity. Uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. Um, and then uh, I bought Scream, uh, the 25th nice. anniversary version or whatever that they just released, uh, which apparently is a new transfer from the original negative or at least a, a 2K intermediate, something like that. I, I saw a couple different reviews trying to suss out exactly which one it was, but uh, it looked very good. Um, I was talking to my, my partner about it and she's like, well, how does it look? I mean, is it, it's like a real big improvement. And I was like, honestly, I think the last time I watched this was on VHS. Yeah. I don't think so, I've seen that since, since VHS. Yeah. I mean, I watched it a lot in the nineties. Um, yeah. Cause it was, it was a revelatory horror film in, in the 1990s. Like it is difficult to overstate how 
big Scream was. Like, so big. And I watched it a bunch. I was shocked when I rewatched it of how much I remembered, like, specific lines and line yeah. deliveries. Like, I made a out big along impression. With it. Very much so. It was just, like, uh, such a pop culture moment because, you know, slashers were so uncool and so bad by the time, what was it, 96? Um, uh, yeah, 95, 96. Yeah. You know, by that point, those movies were just so over and so making yeah, we fun were. of them just it was it was great it was great to see, have slashers lampooned like that and then kind mm-hmm. of done better i don't know i right and, I and wore that respectfully yeah respectfully like done but by lampooning the errors of the originals you know and and um that was definitely the the brilliance of williamson's script and his approach to it born out of his own love for the slasher genre so that was that was a lot of fun but um i Matthew Lillard was so good in that movie, dude. Yeah. I mean, I know he gets made fun of because he basically played that same character in everything that he did for the next 10 years. But his, you know, Stu Mocker as a character and how he approached him was just the just the perfect level of, of obnoxious. Everybody knew that but, guy. But yeah, you you know that guy. And it makes total sense that that guy would be the guy you know um just just really good and and jamie kennedy Hmm. tolerable i mean like it was just it was the right the perfect amount of jamie kennedy america had not yet Um, said enough enough jamie kennedy (laughs) go away yes we were still 10 years from the mask part two uh, (sighs) and uh and, and we were better for it um, but yeah, so uh, I've, I've really been enjoying that sort of foray. Uh, I did get a nice special edition of David Lynch's Dune in mm-hmm. 4K that is absolutely glorious. Um, that movie, say what you want about the content of that film, especially in light of Denis Villeneuve's, um, you know. No, no, new, we will not just Dune. say whatever we want. It is a sacred movie. It's a good <laughs> it's, movie. We will only say good, good things about it. I mean, I, it's been great to see people reassess David Lynch's Dune in the light of a of a new Dune release. And we had to know that like, would happen. You know, yeah, of course. I mean, I always like this, this movie. Written. Oh bullshit! You did yeah, not. Yeah, the, I liars. thought this movie was great when I thought when I was two, and and then I haven't watched it since. But it was amazing. I watched this Everybody movie hated this two movie. weeks ago, and I'm the biggest fan. I'm sorry, I, I, I sound like such a smug movie. bastard right now. <laughs> Hey, I will, because I have loved David Lynch's Dune since I was fucking six years old. Like I, it's the coolest movie I'd ever seen. That movie, dude. It's still the coolest um, movie I've ever seen in many ways. I, I can quote the entire thing. Yeah. I know it by heart. Whether it's the weird ass Alan Smithy four and a half hour version with all the Frank Herbert narration at the beginning that you can only get on the special edition DVD because they've never put it anywhere else. Um, like I've got it. I imported that shit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, it's, it's glorious. And that movie is, is a visual feast, um, much like the new Dune was, but, uh, it's in its own weird Lynchian way. And I, I love it. So, um, that's been really cool to revisit. Um, I have a 4k copy of pitch black that I'm excited to break into. My wife bought me that as kind of a surprise, uh, which was, was lovely. It's a, a, a nice arrow a release. Diesel moment. See, Pitch Black, um, I don't know if we'll be able to do it on this show because it, it was actually very successful, but um, Pitch Black will always hold a special place in my heart because uh, when that came out, I 
my wife and I were, were recently married. We've not been married that long. Lived in a teeny tiny apartment above a very old and very nice lady. And I dug a flat screen CRT monitor out of the trash in front of somebody's house in the town where we went to school. They just had it sitting out there and I was like, hey, that's a flat screen monitor. If that works, it's going to be really good. And it did. And um, I put a DVD player in my computer and it was our first DVD player. And the first DVD that I ever watched was Pitch Black. <laughs> it was the only one that our tiny, you know, little local video store was the only DVD that they had in stock in the weekend that I, I wanted to go try out this new DVD player that I put in my computer. And so I put it in the computer. We had a uh, Papasan chair, like one of those little, you know, bowl chairs. Mm -hmm. And uh, we both curled up in that. I put the speakers because, you know, I had surround sound on my computer. I just had two <laughs> additional speakers that went in the back. So lame. I put those like up on the the edge of the pop sun chair. So we had surround sound and we watched Pitch Black. Um, so it was technically the first movie, I, the first digital versatile disc that I ever watched was Pitch Black. So I'll always kind of love that movie, even though it's it's not a great movie. Um, but I, I have a unique relationship with it. So... Um, I think it's a very pretty, excited to break into that. I think it's a pretty good movie. Um, it's very cringe. It hasn't been that long since I watched it. Um, there are elements that do not hold up. Not yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, one is the weird ass color tinting, digital color ugh. grading that they did. Uh, like everything's all purple for big chunks of it. Um, very strange, weird movie. Not as weird as as. Chronicles of Riddick. I was about to say, like, that that's one, a movie we could talk about on this podcast. Yeah, we that one we can definitely talk about because that one goes so in a direction that I was not expecting. When I yeah. saw it in the theater. I was like, really? This and is a world full of religious zealots that travel around murdering people? Okay. Like it is right. it's extra awkward too, because the other thing that Vin Diesel is famous for, which is the Fast and Furious movies, I've never <laughs> seen any of those. Still. I mm, haven't watched yeah. any of them. So the only thing I know Vin Diesel for is Riddick. <laughs> like, that's it. I don't actually that's understand. That's better. I don't understand the dimensions of his fame, I don't think. <laughs> well, from what I understand, they're all about family. Well, yeah. Really about family. And really, and fa you know. Pitch Black is all about family, too. <laughs> it really is. The family that you make, <laughs> not the one that you're born with. Because that family is going to abandon you on, on the prison <laughs> planet, and you're going to be the last fury and alive. Oh, oh whatever. God. <laughs> wow. I love Riddick though. So much fucking fun. Um, but yeah, so Pitch Black's great. So I can't wait to watch that one in 4K as well. I think it's going to be cool. Because uh, that was a very early shot on digital movie too. So I'll be interested to see how that looks because a lot of the special effects on those early digital ones they did them at like 1080p resolution you know so like the the special effects sometimes don't hold up but i'll be interested to see what it looks like but yeah so you know i've been just enjoying that uh, a few other things here and there i did see you know villeneuve's new dune uh which is an absolute must watch mm -hmm. everybody should see it it's glorious it's it's beautiful it's one of the best looking sci-fi movies of all time the praise has been magnanimously heaped upon it. I know there are people who didn't enjoy it very much. And, and uh, my and issues are They will go down weird. in history as the stupid people that as they are. being stupid. Um, I, I don't like where they ended it. Um, I, I think 
that that's kind of my biggest issue is this movie is split. Uh, they did not make that clear in the marketing, obviously because they didn't want people to be like, well, I'll just wait for the second one to come out and then I'll see them both, um, which I get. But yet at the same time, that means you need to end this movie in a satisfying way. And, and this one kind of doesn't. It's yeah. fine. It's fine. And I'm not but, sure that there's going to be a great place in, in the, in that story to pause ever. To just break. Yeah. Because it's just not that kind of story. I don't know. No. It it's a complete arc, you know, one you know, beginning to end. And if you cut it up at all, it's gonna be awkward. But but yeah, I wasn't expecting it to cut off where it did either. Yeah, it was just it was kind of strange. I was like, well, I would have hoped you even either went a little further or or like after <laughs> when the Atreides fall. Right, like either there or you know a little bit after where they actually ended up. I get why they ended there because there's a time jump in the novel that takes place shortly after the events that we see kind of at the end of the movie. So I, I feel like we're probably going to go to that time jump, and and then they'll just we'll get a flashback of everything that's happened. But um, but it felt know, sudden. It, it's, it's gonna, it was it was it, sudden. it felt very sudden. Yeah, it was like the movie was going 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 going, and it was like oh we're done now, and then. Zendaya says, this is only the beginning. And he's like, oh, oh. we're finished? Oh, okay, cool. Uh, we didn't even see anybody ride a sandworm. Okay. And you never will. Yeah, man. <laughs> Fuck you. Sandworms are losers. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, lots of, you know, lots of stuff that I've been enjoying. I've been trying to revisit some older horror stuff that I haven't seen in a long time. Um, I think I'm going to do a rewatch of the Scream series since I watched Ugh. the first one. Um, I, I remember, I mean, I have strong memories of the second one, very vague memories of the third. Um, I'm not sure that I watched the entirety of the third one. I remember there being a lot of Liv Schreiber, like a lot of Liv Schreiber in the third one. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I think I, I know, we're saw... getting a new entry in January, so maybe, maybe I need to rewatch it. I saw the second one. I think I saw half of the third one, but I should say that <laughs> after the second one came out, I actually made my own parody version of Scream 3, called Scream 3. Uh, it wasn't anything mm -hmm. creative. Um, where I, I posited that they were already running out of ideas. <laughs> and then they I, kept I making movies. So, yes, you know, I didn't yeah, see any of those. Seems to be the way they've gone. <laughs> but anyway, so... You know, maybe that, but <laughs> but uh, I guess we need to talk about another semi-forgotten horror film. A horror is... movie. The Empty Man. The Empty Man. He don't got nothing um, in him. Uh, the pee-pee-poo-poo -poo man. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the bye-bye man. The bye-bye pee-pee-poo-poo -poo man. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so we're going to talk about The Empty Man. Uh, this is a, a 2020 uh release that 2020 was dumped, release <laughs> dumped summarily into theaters in order to fulfill contractual obligations uh by 20th century fox i guess this film has the distinction of being the last film released with the 20th century fox logo um because disney after this one all you know remaining films under 20th century fox's banner were just 20th century studios they took the fox name out of it um so this is the last one with like the full Fox logo. Um, not that that matters, I guess, but it is a, a distinction, I suppose. 
Um, but this is a film directed by David Pryor. It is his first major theatrical film, which is telling in some ways. Um, Pryor is, is most well-known for being the behind-the-scenes documentarian and, and DVD authoring guru for many films, most notably uh, pretty much everything that David Fincher has done. Um, so he's directed behind the scenes, you know, documentaries, you know, the big long ones that they put onto the, the special editions that delve into the production of the film and in various aspects. He's, he's, you know, directed a bunch of those and, and, and you know, been involved in DVDs for, for a long time and sort of special effects stuff. And we should probably the, the say that stuff. people who do jobs like that are the real heroes of the film industry because mm. nobody yeah, wants totally. to do that job. And somebody it's has thankless. to do that job. Right. It's thankless. And, and I will say, um, I think the only one that, that stands out in my mind as being somewhat notable was the behind the scenes documentary for Zodiac, which was incredibly yeah. complete. Um, it just such a satisfying behind the scenes doc to watch. Um, and, and just immaculately constructed. I, I enjoyed that, that documentary a lot. And, uh, and he was, you know, involved in that. Um, so Pryor had made a, a small, uh, you know, sort of independently financed short film called AM 1200, which was about a sort of um, mysterious radio station that you could tune into and, you know, which cosmic horror already stuff. love it. That love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. A real, real kind of. Uh, love that. You know, welcome, welcome to Night Vale kind of thing, um, but creepier. Uh, by all accounts, I, I tried to find it briefly after I watched The Empty Man, and and I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. I imagine if I delve on YouTube long enough, I could probably find it. But, um, in any case, uh, he he got some attention with that. Obviously, he you know had studio contacts because he's been working on these behind the scenes you know DVDs uh, docs forever. Um, and and of he is is reportedly friends with David Fincher. Uh, they are are buds. And, and Fincher has, has been very supportive of his attempts to, to get into feature filmmaking. And so he gets The Empty Man, uh, which is adapted from a comic book by uh, St. Louis native Cullen Bunn, uh, who I've met on a couple of occasions Ooh. at various Comic-Cons in the area. Uh, he's a lovely guy, really cool. Um, has now had a, a very successful and storied career in comics. But this is one he made with uh, Boom Studios, uh, which... Boom Studios, very famously, is it is a comic book studio for people who have been trying to sell film ideas and have been unsuccessful. And so you go to Boom Studios and you make a comic book of your film idea. Then once the comic book is successful or not, I guess, uh, you can then take that to a movie studio and say, we're going to make this. Yeah. It's easier to um, option an existing property. Right. Right. Instead of spelling, you know, selling a spec script. Now you have a, an adaptation, which mm -hmm. is generally easier for a, a movie studio to, uh, to sort of take on. Um, so they've been around for a long time. Um, there have been, been several other, um, you know, sort of decently sized, Projects to come out of Boom. Um, I want to say, I think Cowboys and Aliens came out of Boom as well, uh, and that was very, and that was a very <laughs> famous. 
Yeah, but that was another very famous, like they'd been trying to sell that script yeah. like forever. And then, you know, they finally got, you know, once they, they published it as a comic and it got a little bit of traction, um, you know, then they were able to, you know, sell it and actually turn it into a film. So um, I, I don't quote me on that, though. I, I don't remember if they were involved there or not. There are a couple companies who do this kind of thing. Uh, I know their big thing they've got going right now is Berserker, uh, which is uh, oh, okay. Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Uh, it's it's his his project. And again, it's one of those where he wants to do it as a movie. Couldn't get a studio to buy off on it. They're going to do it as a comic first and then go from there, um, which, you know, totally fine. I'm all, all for it. But so um, the comic book is very different from the film. Pryor stated that he talked with Cullen Bunn and said, hey, I, I really want to buy the story, but I'm not going to tell this story. I'm going to tell something else that I'm interested in, but it's going to kind of be along these lines. And, and seemingly they were cool with that. Um, so it entered in production uh, 2015, 2016. Uh, most of the filming was done in 2016. And then they ran into uh, some significant filming problems uh which i guess we'll, we'll get into in a bit but uh the empty man is, is a horror film uh although i i hesitate to call it a i don't know a full-blown horror like it's 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 much more esoteric it's a little bit more thinky than a lot of horror is um and and i i kind of like it for that um but we follow for the most part a, a private detective former police detective named james Lasombra played by James Badgedale. Uh, he may recognize from being the baddie in Iron Man 3. Um, but uh, he is on the hunt for a missing girl, a friend of the family that has uh, disappeared. And the last time, and, and basically they find her room and inside it says, the empty man made me do it, and it written in blood on her mirror. And, and then he is attempting to find out what happened to her as a favor to uh, this family friend. And uh, it kind of spirals from there. But I, I, I think one of the most interesting components of the film is, is its opening. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a 25-minute pre-credits cold open. I think it's actually more like 20, 22 minutes. Um, but it but will make you think that that is the entire movie and that the yes. movie has just started. And then the movie takes an abrupt Hard left turn. turn. <laughs> Hard left turn into this this detective story set in rural Missouri. Um, yeah, so the, the film opens in uh, Bhutan in 1995, uh, and we follow four hitchhikers, well, backpackers, I guess. They might have been hitchhiking, I don't know. Uh, but four backpackers traveling through the mountains, um, you know, seeing They're young the and hip, and they're That's being right. hip and cool while they backpack right. through the mountains. And uh, one of them has a strange encounter after falling into a uh, cave that he did not see. He starts hearing stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a kind of word almost. It's really interesting because the movie doesn't doesn't really waste any time. It's it starts with them hiking and then immediately they have this this weird thing happen. Um, he's like called to, and then he falls in a crevasse and it's quite funny. Um, I don't think it was supposed to be funny, but I laughed. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a real kind of like slapstick moment because he just kind of goes like whoop and, and he's gone. And, uh, you know, surprising. But <laughs> All also... it needed was the comedy slide whistle. <laughs> Ooh. 
yeah. And so he has an encounter with something. Uh, his friends rescue him and then become snowbound in a, a cabin uh, in the mountains. And, and things go badly for them, uh, to say the least. But not necessarily in the way that you might expect. Um, so this is, is I guess, a, a sort of supernatural horror film, a, mm. a cosmic horror film. Um, in, in some ways, it, it goes places, which I, I love. And this is one of those movies that already is being reassessed which I think is cool. Um, it was summarily dumped into theaters in October of 2020 um, in the midst of the pan- in the midst of the pandemic, seemingly with, with full knowledge that it was not going to do anything. Um, but it's, it's road to production was so much more complex than that. Uh, as I said, prior um, started filming this in 2016. Uh, the bulk of the filming was done in South Africa. And then they were going to return to America and then get most of their, their, you know, sort of U.S. external shots, you know, the, the subdivisions, the city streets, because, you know, that's hard to fake uh, in Chicago. And when they got back, uh, there was an unexpected winter storm and Chicago had two feet of snow dumped on it mm-hmm. and they could not film any of their location shots. So the production was shut down. They said they were going to restart like in April when spring had sprung. And then the guy who had greenlit the project at Fox uh, got fired. Oops. And they were already shut down for production. The incoming president uh, or CEO of of development, whoever it was that that greenlit, uh, basically said, uh, no, you're not going to film any more stuff. (laughs) And... Uh, so they were on hold until like August of that year. So there's eight months that they were down, uh, not filming. And then uh, they realized that their South African tax credit was going to expire. And if they didn't finish it. And so he basically was given three weeks, I think, to shoot his remaining scenes <laughs> and edit the film. And have it ready for test screenings. Now, I didn't know any of that until you just told me. Mm-hmm. But the first thing that I said to you when we talked about this movie was that like 20% of it looks like the worst reshoots I've ever seen. Yes. There and are parts of why. this that look real rough. And it's because they had zero time and zero budget. Man. Um, and, and, and it's telling. Like you can tell they just did not have the time to execute. Because uh, this is a good-looking movie. You can tell that David Pryor has hung around David Fincher for yes. a while. Because there is a lot of Fincher-esque stuff in this movie. Um, f- from a shot, you know, sort of a shot's perspective. You know, Fincher is a big fan of the uh, the crane tracking shot. Like, you know, he puts, he puts his camera on a crane and then he'll, like, have it mm-hmm. follow a car at an exact distance for, you know, who knows how long. And like, he does the, the voyeuristic camera. Yes, yeah. The the I'm watching you camera. Yeah. And and this has a lot of that. Um but just in general it's it's a well shot horror film. You know, I, I enjoy a good cheaply shot, you know, just throw crap in the corner and, and do whatever horror film, you know. I just watched the new paranormal activity movie, Next of Kin. Uh yeah. who boy. 
uh, kind of a franchise reboot. Um, I, I don't, we don't have to get into it here. We might talk about it at some other point, but it, yeah, I mean like that movie looks like shit. It's supposed to look like shit. So I, it's kind of okay, but uh, it's, it's a, it looks terrible. This movie looks good. It looks really good. Um, I think visually it might be one of the best looking horror films I've seen in, in a while. Um, apart from like some of the stuff that, you know, everybody's talking about Giallo now. We talked about a little bit with Malignant. Uh, there's a British horror film called Censor that uh, also is leaning heavily upon Giallo. Way better than Malignant did, if I, if I have to say that. Um, but, you know, a lot of neon lights, a lot of like 1980s influenced, you know, sets, that kind of thing. Um, this movie just, just looks but there are there are certain scenes that do not look good yeah. and are very rough. They um, they they go from like being, you know, filmic quality to being like soap opera quality just in terms of how it's shot. And I I would love to know what happened just in translation there. I mean, it's so sad. I would I would bet that to save time and money knowing that they would need to to turn this around quickly. Um, the bulk of this movie looks like it was shot on film. Um, and I'm met, I'm going to bet that most of the reshoots were shot digital just for time. That makes sense. That would be my guess. Um, but I don't know that for sure. I mean, digital, digital, when it's done right, you can make it look like 35 millimeter, very, you know, very close. You know, the only thing you really lose is sort of that, that telltale 35 millimeter film grain effect. But um, maybe they didn't have the time to do those, to set those things up properly. It's hard to say. But yeah, there are some, some dodgy spots. Um, but, you know, this is a film that uh, is, is equal parts horror and detective piece. Like, uh, that's one of the things I really like about it. There are lots of detective thrillers that wherein no actual detecting takes place. Um, you know, it's just a character fumbling their way towards their inevitable conclusion. A lot like of people don't know how a movie or something. Don't know how to write an unraveling mystery, and you know, it's hard to do. It's not. It's, tough. it's yeah. not actually that easy to write a compelling mystery where a character discovers what's going on, and it doesn't feel like it's just happening to them. I get it. That's difficult. Right. Yeah. But this movie does kind of pull it off. Yeah, I think I think it's actually a pretty compellingly written thriller. Um, one of the issues, uh, you know, if I saw the trailers for this before it came out. I did not see this in the theater. Again, height of the pandemic, not really going to see movies at that point. Um, but the trailers, and the reason I referenced the Bye Bye Man before, um, or the Pee Pee Poo Poo Man, or <laughs> to call him, because um, if we're just going to say repetitive things, I think there's much more fun repetitive things that we could say. Um, this was was trailered as another one of those, right? A, a Candyman style of the, you whisper the name of the empty man and blow into the bottle three times on a bridge. You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's which not is a an, great title. I mean, it just is. Yes. It's. It's it's an appropriate title, but it's not really evocative of anything that the movie is trying to do. No. Um, and, and and to trailer the film by hedging it like oh, this is like Slender Man, right? Yeah. Or any one of these like teen movies, um, where you know they they summon an evil entity that murders them in in various places. This movie has a little bit of that but it's the weakest part of this film. 
Um, and, and most of that is, is a bit of a dodge, right? It's a, it's a red herring to lead you in the wrong direction kind of thing. Um, but this is a film that has genuine, um, genuine fright to it. I think there's, there's a real threat, um, that feels legitimate. Uh, there's also some, some really good, um, legitimate scares, not just jump scares, but like actual, it reminded me a little bit of the conjuring, you know, um, in that, you know, Juan is very good at building to a scare, right? right. Like, you know, and in this one, there's there's several scenes where the characters are kind of toying with something or or looking at something, and then you know things change very quickly, and and, and you know the, the scares begin, if you will. Right. Um. It's it's really well structured. So in the midst of this detective story, um, you know James Badgedale's character has to sort of unravel not only what might have happened to this young girl that he's trying to find, but the group that she has seemingly becoming in, become involved with a sort of cult-like group that has set themselves up in St. Louis uh, and, and are now, you know, working towards something that may or may not be nefarious. And so the, the things kind of spiral out in really interesting ways. Um, Pryor also wrote this film. Um, so he kind of was top to bottom control of, of the, the production itself. And this film also has the distinction of being an exceedingly long, horror film this is a two hour and 15 minute horror movie which is rare to say the least um uh one thing i in watching scream that i was reminded of is just how sort of brief that movie is um it gets in it does what it wants to do and then it gets out right yeah. we're not wasting any time we're just going to get the scares and then we're we're done you know Bring back short movies. <laughs> and and this movie is not that, but I, I think it kind of works in its favor. Again, not, not every horror movie has a 20-minute cold open that sets up a bunch of things but doesn't have any like direct relationship to the plot of the film. And and that's that's kind of shocking. But um so what are your your sort of main takeaways? I'm I'm pretty high on this movie. If this is one that if you have not seen it, uh, I'm I'm gonna say definitely go check it out. Uh, as of right now, which this is November of 2021, uh, it is streaming on HBO Max, and that is the only place that you can watch it legally that I am aware of. Uh, and there are no current plans to release a physical version of this film, which is shocking to me. Um, the fact that a theatrically released major studio movie is not going to be released in some form of home media is, is kind of shocking, but that's the empty man is a forgotten film already in terms of the studios. So um, just kind of shocking, but so where, where are you at on this one? Um, I, I like a weird, creepy movie. I've never not liked weird movies and creepy movies. And this is a creepy, weird movie. Um, it is exceedingly creepy. I think it's it's creepy and weird more than it is scary. And mm. maybe that wouldn't have worked for, you know, a, a theater audience. I can't see, you know, your average horror-going fan having a great time. Because mm. it's not, like, this isn't a fast-paced movie at all. It's no. not no. It's not really delivering, you know, a lot of those iconic jump scares. 
Um, but I really enjoyed it. And I didn't, I didn't know anything about the movie. So I, I just watched and enjoyed, but I really did. I really did have a good time. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's not a typical horror film in its structure, its length. It's, it's, and then how it gets scares. Um, it's very much more that sort of moody as as i said that kind of moody atmospheric kind of horror it's it's developing the scares through the scenarios the situations the perspective of the main character um it's it's cautious and careful in that way it's it's not final destination where a log is going to fly through a windshield and murder somebody it's it's much more deliberate than that um it's i'm trying to think there was a movie that came out it was really big on netflix for a while um that was uh it was a bunch of people trapped in a radio station and then outside them the world is is sort of falling apart and um this one it reminded me a bit of that uh, you know just a sort of slower quieter but yet the you know if you sort of invest yourself in the world there's a lot of of real terror to be mined from the ideas that are being played with. Um, I guess just to briefly hit the, the critical consensus, uh, this, this movie actually had a pretty decent critical rating. Not a lot of people reviewed it. Not a lot of people saw it, but uh, it sits at a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes right now, which means it's you know fresh for the most part. Um, but the audience score is the one that I think is the most shocking because it's a 39% on the audience score, which means mm. that people did not like this movie, um, which tracks according to, you know, some of the production history stuff that I read and the things that Pryor's mentioned in interviews. Um, this movie did not test well. That was really the biggest problem. Um, he was rushed to finish it. They had, they did test screenings. The test screenings did not go well. So the movie uh, was recut by the studio the studio cut did even worse in test screenings. <laughs> and so they basically just handed it back to prior and said, do whatever you want. <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> it's, Gosh. it's going to be bad no matter what happens. And, and seemingly that has been supported by the Rotten Tomatoes score. People are not, do not care for this movie. And I think it has a lot to do with some of those issues we've already discussed. It's quite long. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of those traditional scares. It its trailer presented it as something very different than what it actually is. Um, I think a lot of those things contributed, but for me, this was one of the more engaging horror films that I've seen in a while. Um, it I'm not gonna say it. It reminded me of I really like uh, Morehead and Benson. Um, they did a movie called The Endless a few years ago. They just did Synchronicity with. Uh, Anthony Mackie and uh, Jamie Dornan. Um, and, and they make these kind of horror films, right? Where it's really more about ideas. It's more about feelings and, uh, you know, the, the sort of oppressive nature of a world than it is about, you know, oh, scary monster jump out of closet, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And, and this, I think, is a really satisfying one if you can sort of meet it on its own terms, well aware of the fact that it is flawed. Um, it's a flawed film. Pryor is, is, has said as much. Like uh, I read one interview where he said, honestly, if I'd had another week, he said there was, there was six more minutes that I planned to cut from the film that I literally was just not able to cut. 
they didn't give me the time to do it. Like I had already had, like I knew exactly what was going to be cut. I just had to go in and do it. I wasn't given the time to. And so you got six extra minutes of stuff that you maybe didn't need. And it's like, you know, so it's a flawed film, you know, from its, its, its release in that way. Um, but again, sometimes those slightly flawed, a little bit busted, maybe not perfect movies can sort of be great in their own way. Um, and, and Empty Man certainly falls in that category. Uh, Movie-going audiences did not flock to it. Uh, this is still a modestly budgeted film. Uh, it's $16 million, which is, is high for a horror film at this point. The Blumhouse model has said 5 to $10 million is the sweet spot for horror. You're guaranteed to make your money back if you hit that spot. Um, this one was, was a little higher, $16 million, and it only made about $5 million at the box office in the United States, which again, terrible release timing. It had sat on the shelf for years already. Um, who knows? It, would it have been better if it was released this year? Maybe. Would have been better if it was released before the pandemic? Probably. But we'll we'll never really know now. But uh, again, the, my big thing is just like release it on a DVD, like I or Blu-ray or 4K or whatever. I, I will buy it. I'll buy a copy of this movie in a heartbeat because I, I want to see it. Um, but yeah, it's it's just such a weird scenario for a movie. So a uh, big recommend from me, like uh, before we get into spoilers, uh, uh, definitely seek this one out. If you have an HBO max subscription, put it in your queue, watch it. No questions. Would, would you agree? I agree with that. Yes. All right, cool. Uh, well, uh, there'll be spoilers here. So if you have not yet watched the empty man, we encourage you to go ahead and pause the podcast and go do that. Um, and then return so that you can hear our thoughts on the story. Um, so spoilers now. So that opening, huh? Um, it's like a mini movie. That's great. I really thought that was the whole movie when everyone died at the, I mean, just, you know, spoilers abound. Everybody dies after that opening. Mm-hmm. And holy shit, I I didn't know if maybe the credits were going to roll and maybe you had trolled me and showed me a short right. film. And it was a short film, right? Um, yeah, so the, the opening of the film, as you mentioned, opens in in uh, Bhutan and uh, these these backpackers are going through uh, the, the Ura Valley. It's 1995. All that's sort of clearly laid out with a, a nice little overlay. Um, and these four friends are backpacking. You know, we get some some this movie has a lot about bridges. Um, I don't know if you noticed that, but mm. this movie is all about bridges. Um, so there's bridge imagery everywhere. So these guys go across a, a, you know, one of those suspension bridges that we've seen. That, it's know, a scary piece together, scary bridge. Um, and as you as you said, the one of the characters he begins hearing something, a sort of sound that he can't quite place that nobody else can hear. It lures him out to this crevasse, small small one. He falls in, and they go down to get him. And, and when they find him, he is is sitting in the uh, you know sort of the Buddhist om position, and he is staring at this thing. It's a giant skeleton. 
Now, I love a giant skeleton because I always think of the space jockey, and that that <laughs> that used to make me very happy before Ridley Scott ruined it. So I love gigantic skeletons, and this one's a good one. It's a good one. It's it's one of those that you can't really tell its form. Uh, it it seems to have it. It almost has like a representation of like Shiva. It's very right? Lovecraftian. Like it's got all of the multiple arms. It's it's folded in on itself. The face is elongated, and and this is really where the film sort of plants its Lovecraftian flag. Yeah. Um, it's going to take us a long time to get back to it, but that's kind of what we're seeing here. Um, and so the 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 guy who fell, Paul, is is seemingly communing with this thing. He's trapped by it. Um, and, and he tells his friend, don't touch me or you'll die, right? Or he whispers it at least. And his friend's like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? Shut the shut up. Like, we're leaving. And, and as soon as he touches him, you see this, like, this wave of realization go over the guy who's in the own position. And he's like, that's it. Like, you're dead. There's nothing I can do about it. And so they, they get him back to this cabin. They find this small place to, to sort of hole up because the snowstorm's coming in, of course. And, um, you know, he, the, their friend is immobile. You know, they have this big argument about whether or not he's faking, sort of implying that maybe this guy's a bit of an asshole and he kind of treats people badly like that. On my second watch, I really picked up on that, that there was this undercurrent that this Paul guy, kind of a douche, maybe they don't yeah. like him. You know, like there's, there's some strain there that they, maybe this was all Paul's idea, you know, that kind of thing. But we we also get our first round of the the whispering, uh, the whispers. Uh, so this movie has a lot to do with bridges. It has a lot to do with bottles and and pipes, like whistling sounds, and then whispering. Uh, there's several significant scenes of that, and it's this very creepy. Um, like the only things you can pick up on are the the like explosive, you know, consonant sounds like. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's that kind of weird chanting kind of thing. Um, and, and you know, the, the girlfriend, Paul's girlfriend, she has a dream of Paul like whispering in her ear and she wakes up and of course he's not there. And then she has a vision of, I, I kind of just called him the raggedy man. Um, and he's just this guy in, 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 you know, sort of tattered clothing and, and he Mountain moves. Ghost. Yeah, he like moves in syncopation with you. If you back up, he moves forward. Which is and, and always scary. Whenever horror movies do that, it's very scary. When something yes. imitates you, why is that scary? It's it's creepy. It's just... I don't know if it's a if it's a mirror neuron <laughs> thing. Like we're just wired to to like not respond well to that or something. Don't act but... like me. It's quit copying me. Stop <laughs> copying me, Ted. You're don't be a jerk. Um, but. It's it and ultimately like they they Paul disappears, they go out the next morning. There's a really nice setup and payoff with a knife by the door that we we see and, and then the girlfriend ends up murdering all of them, mm-hmm. including herself. And they, they all die. And the only one left is Paul sitting at the edge of this bridge with this little pipe blowing into it and, and then that ends and the credits hit and it's like been twenty two minutes. And so, like, these characters, you thought, oh, we're going to learn all about them. We're going to be trapped in this mountain, you know, snowy thing, trying to evade this this dude in tattered rags. 
Nope. Not at all. Done. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, is such a strange swing for a horror movie, right? I mean, like you would expect a cold open to last maybe five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. But to to fully be like, you know, I mean, again, we've talked about this before. The old rule of thumb is by page 10, you need to have like your main characters introduced, your conflict established. You certainly don't want to be slitting their throats and pushing them off of cliffs. <laughs> like no. that's not usually what you do with your characters after introducing no. them for 23 minutes. And, and this movie's just taking that swing and it works super well. And what it leads to is that ultimately that first 22 minute little, you know, opening is kind of a self-contained horror movie, right? It's a, it's a self-contained little chunk. And, and you can watch that 22 minute independent chunk sort of as its own, but of course it becomes the sort of foundational piece that we don't understand yet that leads into what's going on in, in the remainder of the film, you know, the, the last two hours of the movie. Um, so we flash to, uh, I don't even remember what they called it. Webster something. Webster uh, Mills. Like Webster Mills. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we live in Missouri that it's obviously a reference to Webster Groves, uh, which is a, St. Louis suburb, you know, relatively close to us. Um, and pieces of this were filmed. They they went on the Illinois side, but they did do some filming in Edwardsville, which is right across the river. Uh, there's a famous bridge that the movie has in it called the uh, uh, Chain of Rocks Bridge. Uh, that's decommissioned. Nobody uses it. I think it's still walked across, but nobody drives across it anymore. Um, and they did some filming there. So it, it actually does have some locations, you know, relatively close to, to where we live, which is neat. It's always cool to see that stuff. Be like, hey, I've been there. I know what that is. Um, but this is Webster Mills, Missouri. Very different. And and we're quickly introduced to our, our real main character, right? Forget about those four other fucks. We don't need them. Where's he? This is this guy. <laughs> and uh, and that guy is James LaSombra, played by James Badgedale, who is great in this. Uh, James Badgedale basically has to carry this movie. Uh, he's in from now on, he's in every scene. Yeah. Um, which is, is again, uncommon in horror films, generally in horror films, your main characters sort of fade in and out of the picture. We get introduced to new characters who are going to be murdered and you know, that kind of thing, which we do have a couple of scenes like that, but they're very short. And then we're right back to James. Um, so, um, La Sombra is a, a former police detective who now runs a security business. You know, he sells mace, stuff like that. And uh, we find out pretty quickly that he, he left the force after. He's got an accident in his past. A bad thing happened. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and now he's miserable and alone and he hates everything and he wishes he was dead. Uh, which is, you know, exactly what you want in a good protagonist, right? Yeah. <laughs> And and so he becomes very quickly um, a a friend of the family, uh, a young, um, well, I guess not young, but a high school age girl that he's his family friends with comes over to check on him. Um, talks a lot about some weird stuff about like finding yourself and maybe the universe is talking to you and you know just a, a lot of weird like culty shit. And and then she disappears. And and so James is called in to to privately investigate what has happened because the cops aren't going to do anything. They think she just ran away. Well, and and he's got a relationship of some type with the mother of this girl that's not clear yet. 
in the movie. It takes a while for us to figure out exactly what the context of their relationship was. Yes, and and the movie's very deliberate in how it paces those things out, yeah. and rightly so. Uh, I I think the um the way that it doles out its information is very sort of traditional detective story, and and I think that works in its favor. Um, if they if they doled out the reveals too early, I, I think this movie would be fairly easy to disengage from. I think yeah. just kind of tune out, be like, oh, okay, I, I know what that is now. I'm not going to pay attention. But instead, you're sort of strung along because you don't really understand why they are linked up to each other. I mean, there's clearly like some sort of romantic tension between them, but you just don't understand the context of it. So it, it is sort of you know interesting to to string that along as as long as they do. Yeah, and they they really do kind of play it out. Um, so. Again, one of the things I admire about this film is that there's actual detecting, right? Because a lot of detective work is going, hunting people down, talking to acquaintances. Hey, did you notice anything weird? And that's exactly what he does. He goes to um, the girl's high school, tracks down her friends, and begins, you know, sort of questioning them about what they were doing in the last few days. Has anything strange happened, etc. Did you notice the name of the high school? I did. I did. Uh, Derrida. <laughs> Jacques Derrida High School, little, right? Uh, uh, that was that was that actually made me laugh. Um, yeah, I did the same. I was like, oh, come on now. That's cute. That's cute. Just, you're leaning into this, aren't you? Uh, again, this movie has a lot to do with with bridges, uh, deconstru- the idea of deconstruction of the self, deconstruction of of the mind, right? Sort of uh, deconstruction of society, right? That kind of thing. Like it, the movie really sort of plays upon a lot of these ideas and prior All very culty concerns. Yes, very much so. And um the 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 way that Lissomber is introduced to us, you know, we, we learn how lonely he is. He uses a uh it's your birthday like coupon to go get food and and it's obvious that he's used it multiple times, you know, like that kind of thing. It's just very, you know, this dude is pathetic and, and his life is very sad. And, and then he's embroiled in this, this, you know, mystery and it kind of brings him back to life a little bit. So from the high school friends, we get a, a little bit of a story that they had gone to a bridge at the night in the middle of the night, they'd heard the story of the empty man that if you, you know, blow on the bottle and you say empty man three times or five times or something, um, that he'll he'll show up and he'll, you know, do something. And so they do that, and it's a really well-executed scene. They're screwing around, drinking beer, and then, you know, one of them does the empty man blowing the bottle thing, and then, like, there's something on the other end of the bridge. And, you know, I, I love directors who can build tension and scares out of basically a flat frame with nothing in it yeah and just a little bit of sound effects i i really appreciate that because it's not easy and and this one does it with you know a little you know sounds like somebody's throwing some rocks or something and and then it you know freaks out and, and cuts but in essence this film plays upon one of my favorite ideas an idea that i first discovered reading uh neil stevenson's um snow crash which is the concept of a sort of linguistic brain virus, uh, a virus that is spread 
through ideas, right? An idea virus, if you will. Mm-hmm. And and this movie plays upon that too, and and sort of insinuates that these these high school kids that hung around with uh, you know the girl he's looking for had all been somehow infected by this virus, right? And we see several scenes of even the the girl doing the whispering thing that we saw in the opening uh, with some of her friends who all fucking wind up dead hanging from the bottom of the bridge. Shocker. Uh, which, man, that was a good scene. That was really uh, good. It was Disturbing. really Disturbing. Just, yes, creepy. Because um, it's so serene. It's shot in this really, really serene way. Like, he finds them and, you know, he's obviously mortified, but at the same time he's interested and feels like there's evidence here um it, it's it's really cool but there are all these missing kids and then he finds them all on this bridge you know they've hung themselves um really really uh, tightly you know sort of effectively created um and then the girl that he initially interviewed about what had happened in possibly the most like bye-bye man style scene in the movie she's in a steam shower i guess um because she's i don't know she's a swimmer something and she's in a steam shower and and we see her being attacked by the 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 empty man or whoever it is but then we're we're quickly shown that she's killing herself right like he's the one stabbing her in the face but she's doing the stabbing with her own hand um you know implying a sort of of, of mania or insanity that's coming over them because of of this And, and perhaps this is what happened to the other ones too but that was the most sort of obvious like teen slasher moment in the film and i remember a couple shots of that being in the trailer uh i think anyway and and so it was kind of out of place that's the i was watching it you know with my wife uh, and that's kind of where she tapped out and i was like no honey like literally that's the only scene like this in this movie nothing else like that is going to happen in the entirety of this but yeah so the the um I i was watching it with my my partner and um, this this scene in the steam shower where the girl sort of kills herself, which is the most sort of obvious like teen slasher moment in in the film. Uh, that's where she tapped out. She's like, yeah, I don't want to see this. And I was like, no, 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 wait. Like this is the only scene like this in this movie. Literally nothing else like this is gonna happen. Like this is that's it. Um, and she was like, really? I was like, yeah, that's. I, I guess they were appeasing the teen slasher gods. I guess that's what was happening. I'll tell you, sell but, a movie. Yeah. That's right. You know, you got to have a naked girl in a steam shower killing herself. That's the only way you're going to get this. That's it. It's the only option you have. So for me, the movie really, you know, after all this stuff happens and the the sort of teen drama component of it dies, he ultimately is led to the Pontifex Institute. Um, And and this is the the cult that the girl has has apparently become involved in in the last few years. And this is where the film I think picks up and especially increases in its sort of creep scare factor. Um, Cause there's nothing creepier than a bunch of, of folks devoted to a culty cause. And, and that's exactly what we get here. Yes. <clears throat> um, so it's, it's important to note again in a film that's obsessed with bridges that Pontifex, even though it is most commonly associated with the Pope as a, another term for the Pope, uh, Pontifex actually means builder of bridges. Mm. Um, and, and so this Pontifex Institute 
is is seemingly just your sort of run of the mill self help self empowerment kind of thing, but um, he sits down to take the like entry questionnaire and it's got all the stuff about like society is is a lie right and um, all these these things that are, are are much more aggressive and strange than we would expect, um, and then we get a, a wonderful cameo from Stephen Root. Mm-hmm. Um, who does a great job as the the sort of cult leader, and and he gives a, a sort of sermon, I guess, talking about the self and and empowerment and how you can find peace in the world. But it has this weird sort of nihilistic, give yourself over to something kind of quality to it. Um, and, and this is again the the creep factor just just sort of from here on out just becomes exponential right things just get weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder from here on out um as as james lasombra begins to you know investigate these people and what they've been up to um so i mean i i this for me is where i kind of re-engaged with the film the teen stuff was fine but i wasn't like super interested in it. i was like okay you know obviously the girl's not actually missing she's involved in this somehow um, and it was more just like, well, what is she involved in? And so when it got to the Pontifex Institute and, and his, you know, exploration of that, that's where I kind of tuned back in a little bit. Um, I don't know if you had a, a similar reaction. I did because it, it felt like, um, like the contractual obligation to have the horror stuff was fulfilled. <laughs> and then the movie was like, okay, back to what we were actually doing, which is this, the strange unraveling of this very weird cult because it, it's just not as it's not as uh, conventionally horrific as as I think maybe people would expect. Yeah, um, you know, again, this is not a straight horror film in the traditional sense. It's definitely not a slasher film. Um, you know, this this empty man or or whomever the the villain is 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 not is not that kind of like slender man style ominous force that's coming for you, right? There's something else going on here. And that's the big question. Uh, this is a movie that is actively lying to you for 90% of its runtime, which I think might be why some people really reacted negatively to it. Yeah. Um, nobody likes that, right? Or at least a lot of people don't like that. Um, it's fine when it's a twist that then reframes the narrative. Most people are okay with that. But in this particular case, you're actively being shown things that are not true and then told that they're true by the nature of how film language works. Right. And, and that is, is complicated. And, and I don't know if Pryor pulls it off. I really don't. I, I don't think he's expert level at it. It's a, it's a big swing for your first film to kind of pin, you know, pin your whole script on that. Yeah, I agree um, with that. But it's it's enough that I I'm I kind of stayed engaged because he goes snooping around he goes down into the bowels of the Pontifex Institute he's in this giant open space there are people like having a weird ceremony they're blowing in bottles which again we've seen a bunch of times um, they're like is there a presence here and he's like what are you talking about me but then there's somebody else there that he can't quite see that might be the empty man like there's just all this this stuff um, that he discovers and then he gets kicked out 
then we meet another character who kind of gives him a bit more exposition. Cause that's the one thing I think this movie does super well in terms of horror. It's exposition delivery is pretty good. Um, you know, there are certainly moments where a character has to deliver some kind of information, but it's, it's nothing like most horror movies wherein you just have a character, you know, in act at the end of act two who says, here's what's going on. And we don't get that. And that's really nice. Yes. Um, it's, it's so refreshing to just kind of be, to, to have information delivered to you in a satisfactory way. That isn't just a character telling you everything that's happened and it's about to happen. That's, that's really nice. And horror is one of those genres that generally they're okay with having, you know, the old man in the corner who's like, ah, you kids, you just don't know. You know, the, the character from pet cemetery was like, yeah. oh, well, that's where we bury the pets. You know, like sometimes that is better. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> like we, 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 Sometimes it's nice to not have your information delivered by the wizened old character who knows everything. Um, and in this case, that's that's the way it works. Um, but, uh, you know, things happen, cool stuff. But the the pinnacle scene in this film for me, like the one that changes everything and makes this a super memorable horror project, is the scene at Camp Elsewhere. Yes. So he's told by a, a, a teen, uh, who I'm assuming this is a reshoot, uh, to get them there. Uh, he's told by a teen that the daughter is at camp elsewhere, and she's studying to to go up in the ranks, right? So it's a little bit like a Scientology component, I guess. You're supposed to like go up in the levels. And, and this is really up. styled like like a Scientology type cult, which I enjoyed. Yeah. I just think that's that's a great look for for movie cults. Yes, it's it's a good one to to sort of build your your cult base from because uh, it's it's got all the pieces you need, I suppose. And so James is going to go investigate camp elsewhere. And. Um, I, I don't know this. This scene just works. Hundred percent, it's almost like another little mini standalone movie. You know, so maybe this is Pryor's short film experience coming through here where he sort of built this movie out of a bunch of little short film ideas that he had had. I, I don't know. And I don't care. But this one works really well. Um, so he goes to the camp and it's it, you know, as someone who has lived in Missouri for a good chunk of his life, uh, it looks like a Missouri summer camp. Pretty close, at least. And uh, as he arrives, he finds one particular cabin that is open. He goes in and he discovers things. Mm -hmm. um, he finds, is that where he finds his own file, but it's empty? Yes. It is. Yeah. So he finds a file with his name, but there's nothing in it. It's a nice it's, little it's, investigation and discovery scene, which I, I always enjoy those. I love, I love when movies have the scene of the guy pouring over files. I don't know. Right. That's just, it He's makes me happy when it happens. Over files <laughs> or seeing images. Uh, this one goes a step further. It goes down the, the malignant hole and we actually get a VHS tape, which is always fun. Um, but we get a VHS tape of a ceremony being enacted by several young members of the Pontifex Institute, presumably. Um, and in it, they they are performing a ritual and then in the other room, a being is present. Uh, pale, 
of course it's being shot with night vision so it's like cat eyes you know it's it's a creepy creepy thing and it's this immovable entity and there's this great shot in the middle of the tape where it pans over and we see the thing like painting on the wall and it's making a character in a certain position position very similar to the one Paul found himself in when he was communing with the empty man thing and and then Lasombra just kind of like he's looking at the tape and then he looks over at the wall <laughs> and the painting is on the wall and he just kind of goes like eh? and then he goes back to the tape like oh this happened here that's great um there's also a really good bit with a teddy bear like a torn up teddy bear that's sitting there and then disappears and then shows up again later it's just a, again a lot of very artfully the, crafted great sort of disconcerting horror moments the vhs tape i felt like maybe this was just me it played homage to uh chris cunningham's rubber johnny video because that's all yes. i could think of um, so like oh yeah, nice <laughs> bringing yeah, back was, the old school viral horror <laughs> like apex twin shit yeah um yeah very much in that in that vein uh it's it feels like an artifact of the time period you know because it looks like it was supposed to have happened you know back in like the 90s maybe um but regardless it's it's creepy as hell it's extremely well shot um great lighting you know it, a lot of modern movies can't make artifacts that feel appropriate to the time period in which they were created um, you know, they just, they just can't do it. Right. Cause you're filming it with modern stuff. So you have to make it look shitty, but this felt like, no, they actually somehow, you know, somebody found a DV camera from, you know, 2004 and they actually shot all that stuff on that DV camera. And then they, they worked it into the film. Um, but so he, he makes some key discoveries, um, some kind of experiment that experiment went wrong. People died. You know, like he's just developing an understanding of who this Pontifex Institute is. But then he goes outside. And this, for my money, is, I mean, if we're going to look at 2020 for sure, but I'll, I'll even expand it to this year as well. This is one of the best horror scenes of the last couple of years. Just so good. Because uh, he goes out and he observes some kind of cosmic ritual taking place. Hundreds of, of black clad people look a little bit like the guy that chased people through the snow um dancing around a bonfire that bonfire then stretches up into the sky almost aurora borealis like and, and disappears and then all the lights go out right and he's kind of standing there across the lake or a pond or something and he's just kind of watching and observing and and then people start moving and, and there's a lot done in this film with people kind of running at you, right? Like the, that slow, oh, we're moving slowly, and then now all of a sudden we break into a run. There's been several scenes where the, you know, the empty man figure has done that several times. And, and this time it happens with this huge crowd, and it's just so great. Because um, they do the back and forth thing, right? Like the step forward and then step back, and then they're following and matching well, his footsteps in unison. And it's it's so good. it's great because it it plays on that whole you know the the voyeuristic thing where we I love I love any time a movie has you know a scene where we we catch a glimpse of something we're not supposed to see and clearly this 
ceremony, this ritual, he is not supposed to see it. Um, it again, it has that, you know, that really disturbing movement quality that people moving in unison, people talking in unison, it's creepy. We all know that's creepy. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's it's already scary just with him observing. And then when all the lights go out, suddenly their attention is focused on him. Yeah, And then and, they and... continue to move in unison. But it just, it's such a great combination. It's a great buildup because you don't even really understand what's happening in the scene. Uh, until they've been looking at him a while. And it's kind of at the same time that uh, that James realizes it, that, you know, the audience gets to catch up too. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? They're looking at him. No. Yeah. It's so it's, scary. And then I love it because I love when characters react appropriately in horror. Um, and, and in this one, the moment they start walking towards him, he's like, oh, fuck no. And he just runs. Yeah. And it's it's so perfect and so sort of, you know, to the moment, right? And then it, of course, breaks out into a more, you know, sort of standard action scene after that. But, you know, this this idea of the empty man is being built up, this idea of how the Pontifex Institute sort of respects him and, and sees that the empty man will deliver power unto you if you sort of give yourself over to him is kind of the message that Stephen Roots, you know, his, his message delivers that Lissambra is listening to. Um, but in the cabin, you know, he finds all this stuff about Amanda and and her friends and something they were trying to do. And, you know, he gets just enough information to sort of, you know, get on to the next piece. But James, something is also wrong with James, right? Like, Lasombra is not okay. He, we, we see several times he's taking a medication that seems to be some sort of anti-anxiety medication. We don't really know what it is, but it's it's something that he's taking regularly, and then he decides to stop taking it. Um and so the the character itself began, you know, is slowly becoming unraveled as all of these things are going on, and that kind of all comes to a head at the end. So he's having hallucinations. He starts seeing the tattered man, the empty man, whatever you want to call him, you know, periodically in his home, um, which uh, I don't know if you you know are paying attention to the decorations in the home, but a second watch of this film did wonders to see just how. Specific, a lot of the choices in the movie are. Um, there, there's artwork and paintings and posters everywhere. Yeah. And they are all of images from the opening 20 minutes, right? The mountain range that they were hiking on, the cabin that they've got snowbound in. It's everywhere. Yeah. Um, there are even images of La Sombra. Eventually it's revealed that La Sombra and the, the wife or, or and the, the mother of the daughter that he's looking for had an affair. And on the night that they were either the affair started or, or continued, it's, it's hard to say, um, La Sombra's wife and child were killed in an auto accident, which is also exquisitely staged. Great car crash yeah. sequence. Um, just very brutal, very sudden, um, good, good stunt work. Like it was, it was really good. Car crashes can be so boring in, 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 in movies, but this one was, was excellently done. Um, and so that this is now the guilt, right? So we, we know that James has been assaulted by some kind of guilt. Uh, we've heard character whispering, where were you over and over again? 
um, throughout the film. So he's, he's got this well of, of pain inside of him from this terrible choice that he's made. And uh, I, I guess it's worth mentioning that uh, the mother is uh, Marin Ireland, uh, who is, is really, really great in this. Uh, she doesn't, she's not in a lot. She's crying in most of her scenes, <laughs> like ugly crying in most of her scenes. Um, some people may know her. She was had a pretty large role in the second season of um, Umbrella Academy. Like she was in that, but she's she's done a ton of stuff, uh, mostly sort of supporting work. But so uh, she's in this, and and I think uh, does a really great job as this this you know sort of character. But it, it's revealed that they had a, a an affair, and then something went bad, and and so now that's that's why he's miserable. Um. So they're the kid that told him to go to camp elsewhere. He tracks him down again and follows him and finds them going to a hospital in the town. And so he follows them inside the hospital and then is is sort of led to a a figure in a hospital bed, an emaciated man. And they they seem to be sort of worshiping him. They fall down on their knees in front of him and uh, this, of course, is where our, our opening sort of 20 minutes ties back in, you know, fully. If, if you, you know, hadn't been picking up on some of those additional cues that uh, this is, is a related story. Um, and so now things begin to come really rapidly. And this is one of my other issues with this film is that once these revelations hit, the film just speeds to its wrap up. We don't spend any time wrestling with the knowledge that we're we're learning um and i guess the biggest thing is is the concept of the tulpa uh which we're introduced to very early he finds it on a note in the girl's bedroom and then does some research on it um but uh would, would you care to explain to our dear listeners what a tulpa is it's a being born from thoughts you think it into existence with the power of your brain and some right. tulpas can be collect can be made with collective brain power, can't they? That seems to be the case. Mm. Um, now, my primary familiarity with tulpas comes from two places. One, uh, the X Files, uh, which had an entire episode mm-hmm. devoted to tulpas. That's uh, third, third where I first season. learned it. <laughs> yep. That's uh, that's that was my first introduction uh, introduction to the the concept of the tulpa, uh, and then the the second place was in David Lynch's recent third season of Twin Peaks, uh, which is positively riddled with tulpas. Yeah. There be tulpas everywhere. In and season three and this Peaks. and and I I think it's important to mention that the weird in this movie is more David Lynch than it is any other type of weird. Like this is. The detective aspect of this, the cult itself, like, I feel like this would have been cool in, in the hands of a director like David Lynch. This certainly prior doesn't get there, but yeah. it's the type of project that that would sit well with with that kind of almost surrealist approach, I guess. Yes, and I, I think this movie actually would have benefited from a little bit more of that surrealist approach. Yeah. I think it's... Its weakness is that it, you know, I love David Fincher, but David Fincher 
shoots everything as if it is real. Yeah. Right. What you're being shown is real. He's he's a perverse documentarian. And I suppose right? like he's just showing you that. I suppose this, this movie more. I suppose this movie was trying to to use that as part of the this the gotcha. Like, aha, it's not what you thought it was. You thought right. it was real. But at the same time, again, like the the story that it's telling, like I said, it it would be really cool in the hands of somebody like David Lynch, where it could just be a little bit weirder. Yes. And and the fact that the ending doesn't do anything to contemplate the weirdness of what's happening. Yeah. It's just presented to us as fact. Yeah. Oh, this is what's happening. Um, I think it lessens that ability because because this is where the film inserts itself squarely into the H.P. Lovecraft sort of cosmic horror yeah. style. And it's a bit out of left field. Now, the original comic, that's a huge component of it. But in the comic, The Empty Man, the world has already started to change because of whatever this thing is that is, is presenting itself as The Empty Man. It's already begun to infect people. And so, like, the comic book is full of, like, people who are weird, like, mutants and shit. Um, whereas this is more like, where does that start, right? And, and so, so to just sort of lay it out, James, as we've met him, James LaSombra, doesn't exist, right? He, he is a tulpa. He is the empty man, right? Like, the being we've been seeing is not the empty man. James is an empty man, someone that they created from thought filled with a backstory that they created and then spun into existence to become a vessel for this thing, which is now residing in the guy that we saw at the beginning, right? The, the dude who fell in the crevasse, it escaped into him or, or through him in some way. And this group, the Pontifex group had found him presumably and has been keeping him alive ever since. And he has become a kind of, I think, what does she say, an antenna mm -hmm. to this other location, to this old thing. And so like all of these little pieces, and this is what I love about this movie. I, I don't think it's going to work for everybody, but it worked for me. Is all of these little pieces and moments that we've seen throughout this film that we really didn't have context to understand. Once we understand what James is and what they're trying to do by making him a kind of conduit for some otherworldly entity to communicate with. All of that stuff locks into place almost immediately. And it's not like a Shyamalan style twist. Right? Like, oh, now it's this. No, it's it's not that. It's just we have deliberately withheld information relevant to your understanding until this moment. And now everything that you've been told will it well, and, you understand and the context. When it has to do with the narrative focus, because you know, you said at the beginning of this, there's no scene from that opening 20 minutes onward that does not contain James. So mm -hmm. we're entirely focused through him, and so we can't know what he doesn't know. Right. And we are profoundly influenced by his perspective on events. Yeah. And and then that, too, becomes completely unraveled. So he he comes to the hospital, he, he meets Paul, or whatever his, he is, and, and he meets Amanda. Uh, she is there, and she's apparently been there, and she is preparing him, right? She's, like, shaving him and doing all this weird stuff, the, the guy in the hospital bed. And and she basically kind of lays everything out on the table. 
he goes back to the Pontifex Institute and he finds his file uh, now full and it has everything that we've seen him do in the film so far. Uh, but much of it was not him, right? There was another detective who had his family die on Christmas Eve or whatever. Um, but it had the coupon that he goes to the Mexican restaurant, which I believe the Mexican restaurant is also called The Bridge. Um, if I remember correctly, it's in Spanish. Wah, wah. Wah, wah. Um, but so he goes um, and, and finds all this information and and he has these memories. Uh, there's we've been seeing shots of this uh, empty chair in like a a, a cellar of, of some kind, uh, an underground tunnel with a single light over it. And then she, he finds a picture of himself naked sitting in that chair, um, obviously at the point of creation. And then that also recontextualizes the videotape from the campground because we realized that that was a failed attempt to create a tulpa. That tulpa went crazy or something bad happened and then it, all those kids died but this was a successful you know tulpification i don't know <laughs> what that would, what word would be well sounds good tulpification of james um and so i i think what i really wanted is to see james wrestle with that more to try and understand like what is what is this who am i do I exist? What does this mean? Where does the information come from? But the film pretty much just rushes right back to the hospital. And I guess that's where he meets Amanda. Um, and so it, it just, it feels like we had some pieces there and then we just kind of had to get rid of them or we didn't have time to film them or whatever. Like, but it just feels very sudden that we're right back to the hospital and James is having everything sort of explained to him by Amanda. Um, Cause that, that just feels cheap, right? It feels like James would do more work to try to figure it out on his own. And then at that point, everything unravels, yeah. right? He has a vision of his home. It's actually empty. He doesn't really live there. It's all been imagined in his mind, right? Like everything that we've seen in the film, his relationships, the people he's talked to, none of that, is real or if it was maybe it didn't happen in the way that we know um and and again that's risky because audiences are going to look at it go like wait all that stuff was a lie none of that shit happened then what have i been watching for the last hour and a half you know but it's it's i don't know it, it's effective like you feel the feet kind of you, you feel the ground kind of go out from underneath your feet yeah. Just as it would for the main character, which I, I think is is good, and it's it's a it's a cool feeling to create in your audience, um, but it's a lot to ask your audience to accept in the last ten minutes of your movie. With the kind of buildup that it's had, and and the kind of slow kind of not plotting, because I don't think it plods, but this is a very very slow movie, and then to change so suddenly yeah that's a that's a lot it's just a rapid switch to like oh we've we've had this like moments of contemplation we've thought deeply about these issues and now oh he's a tulpa bam yeah <laughs> we're done it was, a little, like, it was oh. very jagged yeah it, it feels incomplete or at the very least not smoothed out via editing and you know inserted scenes and and that feels unfortunate because I, I think it does prohibit the ending from being as satisfying as it could have been. Um, but in essence, he's told everything's laid out for him. He was a tulpa. He's only really been alive for three days. 
um, that, that he's existed. Uh, we get verification of that because he tries to call Nora, the, uh, the mother and says like, Hey, it's James, you know, this, I found Amanda and she's like, who are you? What are you talking about? I have no idea who you are. And so like he, he doesn't exist. And all of those relationships and constructs were all created as part of the backstory for the Tulpa to go on this journey. And uh, we're told that that misery and pain allow the vessel to more easily receive the, the creature, right? Because it's some kind of cosmic entity, right? Like that's what they've been connected to. They, I, I don't remember exactly what they call it. Maybe something like the hidden one or the old ones. It, 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 I don't something know. Something spooky. It, yeah, something spooky about that. Some guy who lives in the ocean, been there for thousands of years. Um but it, he becomes a reset, you know, the, the whole idea is to become a receptacle. And Paul, the guy in the mountains, had been that receptacle for 25 years, but he's, his body's dying. They need a replacement. James is the replacement. Um, and then we get a scene that feels like a reshoot because it looks kind of like shit mm -hmm. of, of James running through a, a series of, of hallways, uh, underground tunnels that were probably very cheap to film in. And, and he is uh, finally attacked by the the raggedy man, right? The the you know the the man in tatters, and and we see the the full you know sort of demon, which presumably is the sort of skinned form of the skeleton that we saw in uh, in the cave, right? Something along those lines, at least. And it, it basically possesses James. It dumps a bunch of black goo down his throat, which apparently means you're possessed. Uh, the Conjuring talk. Yeah, in horror um, movies, whenever you eat black goo, you have a demon inside right. you. Something vomits black goo in your mouth. Look out. You're possessed now. The devil has you. Um in, in this case, the you know, Cthulhu has you or whatever. Yeah. Um and, and so then again, instead of dealing with this or, or trying to better understand this, James simply walks back into the hotel, pulls a gun on the guy laying in the bed, and blows him away. Kind of uh, love. I wondered. That. It's it looked good. I I just love that it was you know, so sudden and it was just like, oh, fuck this. I'll just go. Yeah. I'm just going to shoot him in the head. <laughs> I'm just going to shoot this guy in the head, not knowing that that's kind of what they wanted. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so he blows the guy away. It's it's a prosthetic, uh, you know, human. Uh, and uh, it looked like it quite a bit like it was a good one. I mean, those are very expensive, so I, I understand. But um, but yeah, so he blows that up. There's blood everywhere. It's it's good blood. Nice, nice squib effects. And then James walks back out of the, ho the the hospital room, and and we've basically been told that this hospital has been bought and paid for by the Pontifex Institute. Everybody working there is like in on this, and so all of these people walk out, and they're just kind of staring at him, and then they all like go down on their knees, like we've seen you know the Pontifex members do, implying that James is now the the full vessel for the thing, Yay. and will become the new <laughs> you know the new antenna for the the cosmic entity of horrors to start communicating its horrible, horrible instructions to humanity so that we'll all die and live in pain. Um, but emptiness is great and everything will be fine. You know, all that stuff. Um, and, and, and that's where we end. So it's a, it's a real downer ending, right? He, he didn't, uh, he did not supersede his mission. He did not, uh, he did not detulpify himself. He is is done exactly what he was created to do. Um, 
so yeah, man, I I dig this movie. It's it's not perfect. It no. really isn't. And there are elements of it that I I think with a little bit more tweaking, a couple of more scenes um sort of reinserted. I really just think that ending needs to be slowed down. Like it just goes so fast. It's almost like they were so afraid of revealing that he was a tulpa that they were just like just get it over with. Just and it, it and it would have been you know? nice if there was there was more of a tease, you know, if we if we saw I don't know, maybe a, a quicker deterioration of James mm-hmm. that that might have made a difference. You know, we saw him, you know, popping pills and that sort of thing, but you know, that wasn't really presented as anything that we needed to be concerned about in any other context than he's not doing so good. Um so it might have been fun to to play with that idea a little bit more. And I think hinting more at, at how unstuck he is in the world as well, um, you know, because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to, to have so many scenes of him in his fully furnished house doing things and then be shown at the end, oh, that house is actually empty. It's, it's a good reveal, but it would have been more interesting to maybe have that teased earlier right like and it could have been subtle right like you know pictures gone from the hallway one time when he walks through like where'd all these fucking pictures go and then the next time he comes home they're back you know just like weird unsettling you know sort of like kubrick in the overlook hotel type stuff um to just make you feel unsettled and maybe you don't even call it out just maybe in one scene you know the pictures are there it cuts the pictures aren't there in the next one that's how you get Again, people you know, to rewatch that's right <laughs> and, and you know n- internet nerds will be like oh this is a continuity error he should have had these pictures but then <laughs> Boy, i really hope somebody end, got fired for that <laughs> yeah but then at the end you realize oh it's because none of that shit was actually there yeah was he even in that house who knows um and, and then maybe like i this is a very sparse film in terms of its characters it's it's small probably for budgetary reasons but I would have liked to see, you know, like one of the archetypes of this type of detective movie that usually show up and they kind of have it is like the old friend from the force, right? This one, we have two detectives who are researching the case who know of James because he was that detective that had that thing happen. Mm-hmm. But of course we find out that that was a, an actual detective, but it wasn't James. And so they, they connect with him because they're like, oh, we know a, we know that guy that that happened to, kind of. But they really didn't. It wasn't him. It was someone else. Um, but I really wish it would have been more of an actual like acquaintance. And then at a certain point, that acquaintance is like, I don't know who you are. What are you calling me for? You know, just just to seed um, some of those I'm, ideas I'm a gonna, little bit earlier. I'm going to throw out a movie that, that occurred to me while I was watching. Jacob's Ladder is kind of sure. the ultimate yeah that's is the this really happening yeah. yeah um and i i feel like this movie didn't go hard enough after jacob's ladder with with confusing you and making you think mm-hmm. is this really happening like what am i yeah, watching no, it, <laughs> it wanted you to believe that everything was happening until it didn't and and it didn't give enough it didn't give enough information that when it was revealed, you could look back and say, oh, I see how all that, thing, all that, none of that stuff was really happening. I see that now because the movie doesn't give you any of those clues. 
Right. Right. There are no hints unless you're again, paying attention to the pictures and like, Oh, you know, he's the only picture of him with this other family is them hiking in the mountains, you know, like that kind of shit. Like if you weren't paying super close attention, there are no clues. The second watch affords a little bit more, but even still to have the entire movie unravel at the end and just be like, Nope, none of that shit was real. None of that happened. That dude doesn't, didn't exist. He, you know, was here. He basically the first moment that he woke up is the moment that he walked out at the beginning and sat down on the bench with the girl that goes missing. Like none of that is seated enough that you get the usual suspects effect, mm-hmm. right? Where you realize that, you know, verbal Ken has been lying to you this whole time, right? It wasn't presented that way at the time. You were totally going to buy it. But then all of a sudden, oh, wait, no, I see now where all the cracks in the story are. Um, and again, this is Pryor's first movie. This is a pretty good I, first movie. It's a pretty good first movie. It's it's actually better than pretty good. I don't think first my first movie would be this good. No, mine would just be like about a guy who was trying to boil an egg or something and and he just was really shitty at it and that was like 15 minutes long. That would be my or maybe maybe longer. Maybe mine would be some long. labored yeah. effort of people coming to terms with things because what else do you make <laughs> movies about? <laughs> That's right. What are we thinking about this complex issue? Um uh yeah, I don't I don't know. It's 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 a really 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 well done flick, and given the just colossal problems that this movie was faced with, the literal uphill climb to even be seen by people, I have like a real strong feeling for it. Like yes, right. Like this this thing is worth your time and um. Prior had even shared an interview, um, I guess, because the movie got released, nothing happened, it made no waves, nobody gave a shit, it immediately went out of theaters, it was in theaters for like two weeks, immediately went out of theaters, nobody heard anything of it, and then apparently it came to HBO Max in like April, Um, maybe later than that, I don't remember, but it's on HBO Max now, and it has been, and people are starting to find it. And so like there's already be there's already been articles written about like, hey, people fucking miss this movie. You need to check this shit out. And apparently Pryor said in an interview that Fincher emailed him one of those and was like, the reassessment has already begun, my friend. Like it's already happening. People are finding your stuff and they think it's pretty think it's pretty cool. Um, So like they're they're aware of the fact that this movie kind of like was set up to fail from the start. But when people find it, they're going to find a film that they're going to enjoy, um, especially if you're a horror fan, especially if you're a cosmic horror fan or you like movies that are more about being creeped out than being like viscerally jump scared. And and this movie has, again, I mean, if, if going to the movies, I've been rewatching a bunch of old uh, Siskel and Ebert episodes Um I've just, I've really wanted to reimmerse myself because Ebert by far is the most sort of influential film critic of, of my life. Yeah. Uh, I, I was the kid who was tuning in to at the movies mm-hmm. and, and then of course sneak previews before that, but you know, sneak previews and at the movies. I was the kid watching that late at night. I stayed up to watch mm-hmm. 
at the you know at the movies with Siskel and Ebert and then Roper eventually. But and and Ebert for me was he was my guy, right? He was the guy that was like we agree, right? Because the movies he liked were generally the movies I liked, um, which isn't what criticism is always about, right? It's not just about like finding the people that you agree with, you find people that you disagree with too. That's kind of the point. But Ebert, I always felt like we gelled in terms of of our, you know, the things we liked. We didn't, I didn't always agree with them, but I did a lot. And so I've been rewatching those. And and one of the things that Ebert harps on that I've realized that I harp on is he's constantly saying, "I saw things at this in this movie that I'd never seen before," mm-hmm. and that's that makes this movie worth. That's life, the right? most like, interesting thing about any movie is if I've never seen that before. Because I'm not going to remember a movie that does something I've seen before. I'm, I'm going to remember the thing that does it differently. Yeah, it's going to stand out, right? That uniqueness is what sort of draws you to the film experience. And, and The Empty Man has moments, scenes, ideas, visual expressions that I, I've never seen before presented in this way. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a really, really sort of visually interesting and then from a story perspective, a very exciting and intriguing story. And I think that it's, it's one that I'm glad if people are finding it and reassessing it and, and engaging with it, I'm very glad about that. And I would, you know, if this podcast can even get one or two people to check it out, um, that would be awesome because I, I think it has the potential to really, really become a true cult classic. Because that's what that's the only thing this can be. It's not going to be a classic. It's yeah, not its time it. has already passed. <laughs> it can so only be only reassessed. Yeah, it's only as a cult classic that this film is going to find any kind of footing at all. And I hope it does. Um, I hope David Pryor gets a chance to make more movies despite this experience and doesn't just go back to you know doing DVD insert stuff. Um, because I think he's incredibly talented. Again, for a first swing like out that's the great. gate. This is awesome. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's certainly one of my favorite horror movies of the last year, like pretty easily. Like there's not even really much else that I would put up against it. Uh, as I mentioned, Censor uh, earlier, which, you know, I also have some issues with, but I think is a, is a very effective, more of a thriller than a horror film, kind of turns horror at the end, but it's really more of like a psychological thriller. Which I guess technically this is too. I mean, really, um, but I I just think it's it's really one that people need to find and, and just be aware that it exists because that's the problem. Like nobody knows that this thing exists. It was and, such a blip. And that, that is you know, that is one of the the struggles with how we're distributing media right now, is that there's there's going to be a lot of opportunities to miss things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this the the volume of stuff being released, especially on streaming services, is so high right now. Um, that you know, who knows how people are going to discover you know these hidden gems. Maybe that's what we're here for. <laughs> help with that a little bit. Uh, but yeah, so so that's the empty man. He he is a tulpa. He is this now vessel for this otherworldly creature this ancient thing that has lots of interesting things to say to humanity, mostly about, you know, murder and death and, and you know, the end of the universe kind of thing. Uh, but a tremendous, tremendous film, a lot of fun, not perfect, uh, flawed, definitely too long, but 
even it, with those problems, it's such a unique little thing that it is well worth the time to discover. Um, I hope that it gets a physical release at some point. I hope there's enough interest that maybe at least one of the, the boutique houses gets it and maybe the, you know, Arrow video or, um, you know, one of the smaller places gets a chance to do some kind of release on it because I know I would buy it. Definitely, especially if there were like some behind the scenes stuff or interviews with Pryor uh, or even a commentary track, I'd pay for that in you know, a heartbeat. Um, you know, for now, I'm content to, you know, continue watching it over and over again on HBO Max. I think I've watched it three or four times now. And I, I enjoy it every time and I get a little bit of something else out of it every time, which for me is, is the sign of a really well-constructed film. Um, I, I just saw Eternals. We talked about that a little bit before we started recording. Um, and I enjoyed Eternals. I, I, I think it's being unfairly shit on by people. I don't know why people are, it's people are saying that this is worse than the Thor, than Thor, the dark world. And I'm like, you out of your freaking mind. No, it's not. It's way better than that, but it's really long. And it's, it, it misses a lot of opportunities, right? It's, it's, it's got some failure points that are valid, but at the same time, it's, it's still worth it to watch despite those. And, and empty man's kind of in that same boat. Um, so I, I hope that, that people can find this thing. Uh, and HBO max is, is, is a good venue for it for sure. They've got a pretty decent horror selection right now, but I, I, I hope that a, a physical release is somewhere in the future so that people can maybe just walk into a Walmart or something and see the title, which again, it's not a great title, but it's evocative enough that somebody might be like, huh, sounds interesting and, and pay some money to check it out. I don't know, but more people need to be aware of uh, the empty man. In my opinion. I agree. This was a really interesting movie. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't get to see, you know, films that, just try something, you know, go out on a limb. And it's sad because, you know, you see this movie was not rewarded for doing that in any way. Um, but maybe it can find a second life. Yeah, this this seems like one of the most of the films that have come out in the last couple of years, you know, in this very trying time for the film industry in terms of releasing things. This seems like the most poised to become what we would consider a cult classic, right? People who take the time to find this are really going to be into this. And, and I think prior, you know, if he gets the chance to make more films in this style or, or of this type, I think he's poised to become a really, really fantastic voice in the world of, of you know, horror. Um, and I hope he gets that chance. Uh, I don't know of any projects that he has sort of in the running at the moment, at least none that I'm aware of. Um, but hopefully he's got something in the in the oven. I hope so to, too. To cook and, and deliver uh, like the empty man. But um, all right. Well, any other thoughts on the empty man? I think uh, based on our discussion, it's not too hard to see that this is a pretty hard recommend. As we mentioned before the spoiler section, this is a great flick. If, even if you have listened to our full discussion, uh, this is still a film, you know, even if you know what happens, it's still worth experiencing. There's some really, really great moments uh, sort of across the board. Um, 
But uh, yeah, I think I am I'm pretty pro-Empty Man. How about you? Um, I recommend this movie. I think it actually would pair really well with Jacob's Ladder. Uh, just if you wanted to do some surrealist horror fun times. Um, you know, clearly it's not it's not going to be quite quite as good. Um, but there's there is something going on with this movie. There is something special about it. Um, and I think it is a movie that may actually be better on rewatch. Yeah, there's a, a really good article on Thrillist, I think, with Pryor about this. Um, you know, sort of as the buzz was building in in sort of the middle of the year, you know, it came out, it was available to watch in a, you know, legitimate way. Um where where Pryor basically said that he wanted the movie to reward, you know, sort of multiple viewings. Um and and to to sort of look deeper past the the surface level and that hopefully that people would give it that chance and and I'm I'm you know I definitely think again for me movies that that bear those rewatches I guess that's really where I was going with the Eternals thought like I, I enjoyed Eternals but I, I I was sitting there you know as we were driving home and sort of talking about is it, like I don't know if I ever want to watch it again. I don't know if there's anything additional that I can mine from Eternals. Whereas I think if I watch Empty Man again, which again, this is probably like the fifth time that I've seen it, I think I'll get some more stuff out of it. Right. And that to me is the sign. It doesn't mean that it's a good movie. There are lots of movies that are obtuse and complicated that watching them multiple times isn't going to get you anything else. But, you know, like something like The Usual Suspects or... Uh, you know, even some Shyamalan stuff, you know, of course. Going back and watching it again, you see the the sort of inner workings of the thing. Um, and, and you can feel that in operation here. And and that's exciting, right? That That's an interesting sort of film experience to have that thing sort of teased out. And, and the more willing you are to engage with it and the more willing you are to embed yourself in it, the more rewarded you will be. And, and like good literature, I think, you know, a movie that can do that is pretty satisfying for me. It's something I'm going to be into. Well, all right. I guess that wraps up our discussion of The Empty Man. Uh, we encourage you to go and enjoy that film uh, in all of its HBO Max glory, if you have access to it. If not, I'm sure you can find it somewhere else if you were so inclined. Uh, given that the studio has no current plans to release it on physical media. Tragedy. We should get a petition. Yeah. Do what you got to do. Right. Change.org. Uh, yeah, somebody release it. Change.org. <laughs> Bring the empty man to Blu-ray, please. Um, we demand it. <laughs> but in any case, uh, so if somebody wants to find you online and discuss the empty man and all of its tulpa e goodness with you, where can they do that? You can find me at Baskinator on Twitter and we can start a change.org petition. There are dozens of us. <laughs> Literally dozens of us. Um, <laughs> of course, you can find me at T Baskin if you would like to tell me how awesome the empty man is so that we can agree with each other. Um, and of course, you can get us at F Peace Theater if you want to get us together. That's our, our uh, podcast Twitter account. Uh, and then you can always email us at failurepiece at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you if you got something to share. Um, but we will be back with another discussion of a overlooked masterpiece from the cinematic history of Hollywood. Uh, hopefully another one that is well worth your time, even if it didn't make some waves 
when it first came out. Uh, so we will see you next time. Bye-bye.